Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Humans have always tried to make sense of the world by putting things into neat little piles and then filing them away somehow for future reference. Just makes things easier. If you study biology, you'll know about kingdoms, phylums, classes, orders, families, genuses, and species. Libraries organize books with things like the Dewey Decimal System and the Universal Decimal Classification. And when you go grocery shopping, there are things like signs directing you to the right aisle or department. This applies to music, too. We like to organize music into categories called genres. And this used to be fairly easy. At the turn of the 20th century, we basically had popular songs of the day, you know, vaudeville, show tunes, and the like. We had folk and traditional music. We had religious music and material from classical composers. Music has always separated and stratified and evolved, leading to subcategories within these overall kingdoms. Within classical music, for example, we had Baroque and chamber music and choral and so on. But as the population changed and as the recorded music industry began to take hold and more people began to buy records, this musical fragmentation began to speed up. Jazz showed up in the 1910s and soon splintered into a bunch of different jazz-related sounds. By the 1920s, we were hearing the origins of what eventually became all flavors of country and western music. The blues records of the 1920s and 30s was the forerunner of rhythm and blues. And when you finally get to rock and roll in the 1950s, things, well, they started simply enough. It was this vaguely defined sound that you knew when you heard it. But as more time went by, the more complicated rock became. Genres, subgenres, sub-subgenres, sub-sub-subgenres, derivations, offshoots, spin-offs, outgrowths, branches, byproducts. And now that we're all about streaming algorithms, things that require many, many, many different data points, if they're going to work properly, the number of genres has exploded. People are confused. So that's why we're going to do this. We're going to strip back all the terms used to describe rock in order to understand the natural order of things when it comes to organizing rock into genres. This is your ongoing history guide to musical genres. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and this episode will be 
something like biology class, except that instead of dealing with phylums and orders, we're going to dig into how rock is classified and categorized into genres. Now, the last time I checked, Spotify had organized its universe of about 55 million songs into 2,424 different genres. There's a website called Every Noise at Once that lists about 2,000 genres. But, uh, you know, hang on, we're, we're, we're getting ahead of things. If we're going to understand the whole nomenclature of rock genres, we have to start at the very beginning. And even then, things were confusing. But first, this. The Velvet Underground from 1970 with Rock and Roll. Okay, now where was I? Uh, oh yeah, the, the confusing etymology and classification of rock music. Let's start here. Billboard magazine had taken upon itself to track what records were being bought. They had a chart of what they called race records, which were songs by African-American artists. In the 1940s, they coined a new term, rhythm and blues, which became an umbrella term for music made by black people. Rhythm and blues was one of the parents of rock and roll, a term that was in widespread use by 1956. Credit for the term rock and roll goes to DJ Alan Freed for popularizing it. And like I said earlier, you knew rock and roll when you heard it. It was an energetic music made by a small combo of musicians. Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, and Fats Domino all sounded different, but in the world of the 1950s, we all knew where they were coming from. They were about rock and roll. And because of rock's parentage, the terms rock and roll and rhythm and blues were often interchangeable through to the late 50s and early 1960s. But as experimentation continued with rock, new sounds emerged. And each of these new sounds demanded its own classification under the heading of rock and roll. First, there was beat rock, then folk rock, and then what became known as blues rock. But as technology advanced, better amps, effects pedals, studio trickery, experimentation went wild, and that led to even more different sounds. This led to the transition from rock and roll to just rock. Now, that statement it can be confusing. So so let me let me see if I can unpack it for you. Rock and roll was a style of music that rose in the 1950s and reigned for about a dozen years. But then on June 1st, 1967, the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, a milestone record. And this seems to be the moment when rock and roll graduated from being just a term for a certain type of music to being considered a modern art form. From that point on, June 1st, 1967, rock and roll came to refer to anything that had descended from the sounds of the early and mid-50s. Everything from Elvis and Little Richard to doo-wop and surf to the British Invasion to James Brown and Motown. Rock, as opposed to rock and roll, was born when the world began to take rock and roll seriously. Does that make sense? At first, rock and roll was this trendy, faddish, disposable, immature music for kids and teenagers that would no doubt soon fade away in favor of the next big thing. That, seriously, was what so much of the establishment considered rock and roll to be in those early years. It would be something that would be here one day and gone the next, and kids would get into proper, serious adult music somewhere down the road. But after June 1st, 1967, 
rock began to be treated as actual art, as actual serious music, and therefore needed to be taken every bit as seriously as Beethoven, the best jazz players and the best Broadway producers. The Beatles and Sgt. Pepper, released on June 1st, 1967. We now consider that to be the date rock and roll turned into rock. There's since been some retroactive reclassifications. For example, psychedelic rock, sometimes called acid rock, started appearing in 1965. This was a subgenre that arose out of the drug culture of the day, specifically from people who were into drugs like LSD, magic mushrooms, mescaline, and so on. These drugs create visual and auditory hallucinations, which can also take the form of altered states of consciousness. Mind expanding is another phrase that was thrown around. Psychedelic music was a way of expressing that new sense of consciousness, enhancing a trip, otherwise trying to convey a new way of looking at music now that the mind had been freed from reality and ego. There's no one psychedelic sound, no one style to it, but you know it when you hear it. Blues rock became known as the progenitor of hard rock, a term that began showing up around 1968, which led us into heavy metal by the end of the decade. This was largely a British invention, Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, although the term heavy metal was popularized by Steppenwolf, led by Canadian singer John Kay. I When we got to the 1970s, we ended up with progressive rock and jazz rock, glam rock and roots rock. There was also something called garage rock, which kind of loops us back around to rock and roll, or at least some characteristics of it. By 1973 or so, rock had become too complicated and too artsy and too serious for some. It was time for a reset, a reboot, a reinvention, a back to basics approach, which is where we encounter groups like Iggy Pop, and the Stooges. Raw power from Iggy Pop and the Stooges in 1973. We can call that a type of garage rock, or we can also call it proto-punk. This was a brand of raw rock that was outside the mainstream rock sound, which is to say it didn't sell very well, didn't find a lot of love on the radio, and was confined to people who liked, uh, well, let's call it challenging music, to be polite about it. We didn't know it in 1973, but we were heading towards a big bifurcation in the rock universe. And that split happened in 1976 with the punk rock explosion. Punk rock emerged almost simultaneously in the U.S., the U.K., Canada, and Australia. It was a form of rock that rejected what rock had become. It was essentially a return to the short, sharp, melodic songs of the original rock and roll era, but was faster, louder, shoutier, and much more anti-establishment and anti-authoritarian. It wasn't revolutionary at all. It was reactionary. And just like the original rock and rollers, it scared the crap out of a lot of people. Punk rock was an American invention. The term was first used by a few American critics in the 1960s to describe certain garage rock bands. And while they weren't the first rock band, 
The Ramones were, more than anyone else, the most important early spreaders of this gospel. The Ramones were into this brand of music from 1974 forward. Word of what they were doing eventually made it to the UK, where it was eagerly lapped up by British punks. But British punk was less artsy than what was happening in America. It was more political and far more concerned with the inequities of the class system. In many ways, British punk rock was even more scary. Sex Pistols and the incendiary Anarchy in the UK, released in late 1976. Here's an analogy. 1976 was to rock what the Great Schism of 1054 was to the Catholic Church. This is when things separated into the Roman Catholic Church of the West and the Eastern Orthodox Churches over matters of faith, dogma, and politics. For years after 1976, the rock world was divided into the music that descended from the original rock and roll event of the 1950s and the branches that extended out from punk rock, starting in 1976. These two scenes ran parallel to each other, touching and crossing over only rarely, and each developing and evolving in their own way. And each, in its own way, disavowed the other. Oh, they acknowledged each other's existence, but more often than not, their relationship was... uh, adversarial, very tribal. You had to pick a side and stick with it. This contributed to the creation of two mostly independent and autonomous streams of rock, and that resulted in an exponential increase in the number of individual rock-related genres. We'll pick it up there in a second. The type of rock, the stuff rooted in punk from the 1970s, that branched out from mainstream rock, began as a twig. But as the years passed, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And for the rest of the time we have on this program, we're going to follow that branch as it turned into a trunk. Okay, enough of the botanical analogies. We're going to move to cosmological ones. Punk burned very hot and very bright for a couple of years before it began to sputter. But it did serve as a big bang, the creation of a new rock universe. And as punk cooled, the attitudes created by punk coalesced into a series of galaxies that became known over time as post-punk. Now, let's be clear, because this can be confusing. Post-punk itself is not a genre. Post-punk describes a collection of genres that followed punk. These genres didn't necessarily sound like punk, but something like punk had to have happened for these sounds to have emerged. It wasn't blues-based by mainstream rock. It was punk-based. The first post-punk genre to emerge became known as New Wave. This was a catch-all phrase that seemed to have come out of the marketing department of Sire Records in New York City. This company was very anxious to get into some of the more melodic, more pop-oriented, less angry, and less political music that was coming out of punk, or at least the wave that came after punk. They also knew that in the general scheme of things, punk meant very little to American audiences, so they had to find a new way to package this music. New Wave songs tended to be short and sharp, choppy and twitchy, and somewhat agitated with oddly expressive and frankly sometimes dorky vocals, all performed with clever spins on the old pop music formula, 
often taking cues from The Clash and Bowie and Roxy Music. For example... The Vapors from 1980 with Turning Japanese, a perfect example of new wave. Other examples would be Blondie, The Police, The Cars, The Pretenders, XTC, and The Talking Heads. New wave quickly became its own genre and began to generate new sounds on almost a weekly basis. But even though it splintered into multiple subgenres itself, there were commonalities. Chief among them, a non-blues-based heritage, a pop sensibility, and serious attention to visuals and image, which included fashion sense and stylish music videos. One of the biggest offshoots of new wave was synthesizer-based music. This genre was called synth-pop or techno-pop. For practitioners and fans, guitars were out. The future was all about electronics. This music was also extremely danceable, which is important. Disco had died out, which didn't matter really because it was just so uncool to dance to disco after a while. But techno-pop? Well, that was fine. That was, that was great. And for many people, it filled the post-disco void when it came to dance music. Devo was from Akron, Ohio. David Bowie was a big supporter of these guys. They were not only one of the original new wave bands, but they provided part of the transition to this era of synth pop. And you can hear it in songs like this. If you live in a big place, many factions underground, chase down Mr. Hinky so no trace can be found. Devo, practicing a mix of American new wave and American synth pop. Then we had groups who dug in against synthesizers by embracing guitars in the original New Wave way. A good example would be The Knack, who had a major hit with My Sharona in 1979. And so would both the B-52s and these guys, who came out of the same college scene in Athens, Georgia. R.E.M., a band that, in the beginning, was filed under New Wave. New Wave lasted in North America for a good five years before it splintered so much as to make the original term meaningless. Meanwhile, let's go back across the Atlantic. In the U.K., the term New Wave was not a thing. It was an American term. When they did use an umbrella term, they used post-punk. We've talked about that. And the variety of music that involved within that sphere was insane. Again, this music was not punk, but you could tell that punk had happened. And if I can make another general characterization, British post-punk was somehow, if I can use this term, more artsy than American New Wave and American synth-pop. Visuals and images tended to be even more out there, and the philosophies and attitudes were grounded in and encouraged by the British art school system, which is where a lot of people were parked when university wasn't for them. This focus on visuals and images was perfect for this new thing called MTV, which showed something called music videos. The more telegenic you were, the better chance you had of getting on American cable TV. Here's a partial list of British post-punk subgenres from the early 80s. Skankin' ska groups, featuring bands like The Specials and Madness, who took Jamaican music and gave it a modern spin. The sharply dressed New Romantics, led by Duran Duran and Spando Ballet. 
keyboard-dependent outfits like Depeche Mode, orchestral maneuvers in the dark, and soft cell. For them, it was all about the latest electronic technology, hence the nickname Technopop. Heavy, intense, clanking, mechanical, industrial bands that used a combination of aggressive keyboards, heavy guitars, and hard beats. And goth, or gothic rock, which focused on the dark side of the music, often with genuine gothic overtones. And by that, I mean the trappings of the original goth culture of the 1800s. There were elements of doom to this music, sometimes cut with romantic notions. And every once in a while, someone would inject a little of the supernatural into the mix. This began with dark, somber, bleak groups such as Joy Division and The Cure, but got even darker with groups like Bauhaus, Alien Sex Fiend, and Susie and the Banshees. The strawberry girl, Christine, banana split lady, Christine. The strawberry girl, Christine, banana split lady. When we come back, we need to take a look at a couple of more umbrella terms as we try to make sense of all the genres that can make today's music so confusing. Let's just review where we are. We started with rock and roll. When people started taking rock and roll seriously as a genuine art form, it morphed into just plain rock. Various flavors flowed from that until there was a reactionary backlash and refresh called punk. From there, we went into new wave and various early flavors of post-punk. And before we can go any further, we have to deal with the A word, alternative. With the remnants of punk still around, with the demise of the term new wave, and with the explosion of post-punk music, we needed to gather up all this left-leaning, non-mainstream, experimental, and often uncommercial music into a new pile. But what do we call this pile? The word that fans and critics gravitated to in North America was alternative. Now, why would they do that? Well, the etymology of the phrase alternative music is murky, but we're going to try and figure this out. Some say that it originally described certain forms of FM radio in the 1970s, the kinds of stations that would play slightly different music from all the rest. Instead of just playing Styx, Journey in Boston, and what was called corporate rock, they added the occasional punk or new wave track. Thus, they were an alternative to everyone else. Okay, possible. Another theory involves independent record labels. When you couldn't get a deal with a major label because your sound was just too weird or too radical, your only alternative was to try a small independent company like SST, Epitaph, Berserkly, Rounders, IRS, or one of dozens of others. Therefore, bands who recorded for these alternative labels made alternative rock, music that was an alternative to the mainstream. Campus stations specialized in this stuff. They played a lot of music from alternative labels. And as campus radio stations grew in number and influence, and as they became networked together by a series of magazines and publications, they began to refer to the music they played as alternative. Some of these bands got bigger and bigger and bigger and began to cross over into mainstream consciousness. R.E.M. was probably the biggest. And the word alternative became more widely used as an umbrella term for rock music that descended not from the Beatles, Stones, and Led Zeppelin, but from Iggy and Bowie and the Velvet Underground and the Ramones. It was the birth of what we call in the 90s, the alternative nation. While the term alternative slowly caught on in North America, it never really was a thing in the UK. 
the equivalent term, a word that describes the origins and attitude of these left-of-center acts who recorded for independent labels, was indie. Same, same. In North America, these artists recorded for independent labels that were an alternative to the mainstream, hence it was alternative music. In the UK, these artists recorded for indie labels, which were also an alternative to the mainstream. But let's just be more direct and call them indie. An example? The Smiths. Now we have a foundation of knowledge on the subject of rock genres, we're going to change things up for part two of this program. Remember how I said that there were over 2,000 official genre categories on Spotify? We're going to pick out a bunch of them at random and explore their origins and their relationships to rock at large. Until then, you can catch up on Ongoing History Podcasts by going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that serves up this kind of on-demand audio. There are hundreds of episodes to choose from, and more and more are added every week. And they're all free, of course. There's my website. If you go to ajournalofmusicalthings.com, you'll find music information and recommendations that are updated every day. And you should really have the free daily newsletter so you don't miss a thing. What else? Well, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Give me a follow there if you so desire. And I can always be reached through email. It's alan at alancross.ca. See you next time for the second half of our look at genres of alt-rock. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you.